my name's Donald Clark. I've had a good day in Brighton. I've been down to the cafe in the centre of Brighton with me laptop, looking very much the uh, tech entrepreneur. Uh, I was actually doing something incredibly banal, like planning my hotels and my little holiday next week. Sunny day in Brighton, that was good fun. My background is as a business guy, that's what brought me here. Work brought me out of Scotland, uh, entrepreneur and business guy in the tech industry, in the internet industry, so I've built, floated those companies and sold them. I'm here because, you know, funny things happen, unexpected things happen in your life. And one thing happened to me that, it, it isn't extraordinary, but to me personally it was extraordinary because it just came right out of the blue. Something that happened when I was a young student came back through my television screen, not to haunt me, but to stimulate a sort of big journey in my life and some real reflections on politics and what it's like to exist in a world where there is always the potential for people to spy on you and do you harm. One night, 1993, I was sitting on the sofa with my, my wife and Panorama came on the screen, BBC Panorama. And the next screen was even more amazing because it was a friend of mine. It was a guy called Robin Pearson and it was such a surprise to see just his face filled full screen on the television. We both looked at each other screamed at the screen, my God, that's Robin Pearson. Now, to give you a context for this, this guy I went to university with, and I shared the room with him, literally two beds in the same room. I drank with him, I went on holiday with the guy, I have images of us in Greece, uh, in front of the Parthenon. This is a guy I knew really, really well, a really close friend of mine. It turns out that this guy was actually a major spy, and he was a spy not for the Russians uh, or any other nation, he was actually a Stasi spy. So remember, the wall had gone down in 1989. Where the East German authorities have said, in essence, that the Berlin Wall doesn't mean anything anymore. The good citizens of East Germany had gone in Leipzig and in uh, East Berlin, had literally attacked the Stasi headquarters. Thousands and thousands of West Germans come to make the point that the wall has suddenly become irrelevant. And as the Stasi were burning the files, there were 180 kilometers of files, remember, the shredders actually got so hot that they broke down. And anyone who wants to leave East Germany and go anywhere in the world is free to do so. This left miles and miles of files, and thankfully, or not for the spies in this case, uh, many of the files that were left were the British files. So when MI5, MI6 got hold of this stuff, they knew exactly who had been operating prior to 1989 in the UK. And one of the most important of these spies uh, was my mate Robin. To give you some idea of what this meant, this really was a real spy. This is a guy who had invisible ink. He had a, trans, a transmitter. He was getting paid 500 marks a month. And his cover, although it wasn't really a cover, was sporting events. So Robin was actually from Northern Ireland originally, and he was a fencer, and he was in the Northern Ireland fencing team. And it used to puzzle me at the time, remember this is the late 70s, he always used to disappear at the weekends to some exotic place in Europe. And he, the cover was always he was going to be fencing somewhere. And that wasn't always true, of course. He was being paid 500 marks a month to go and deliver contact. He actually had drop-off points and he would meet his handler, a guy called Behart. His boss was actually the guy who Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy was based on. 
So this was almost a link to the real and fictional work of spying in a very sort of concrete fashion. But he had the transmitter, as I say, he had the ink, he was delivering names from academia, not only in Edinburgh University, that had a very famous defence department at that time. He then went on to work in other areas of academia in Britain, still feeding names back to his handlers in Leipzig. I don't particularly want to tell you it. Um, it's probably not the story you, you think it is. Think it so is. let me describe what this guy was like as a person. I think the first thing you have to say about him is he was an incredibly intense guy. He was intense in his sport, physically fit, super fit almost, running a lot, and of course he was, uh, you know, fencing was his sport. But that intensity really did carry across in everything he did. This is a guy who was 19 who spoke flawless Germany. Remember, he came from Belfast in Northern Ireland. He had a Northern Ireland accent, I have an accent. I don't particularly want to But he spoke flawless German because he, anything he did, he was fanatical about, and he would do it to the nth degree. It's probably not the story you think it is. He was doing German and fine art at university, uh, odd combination. But even on the art side, there was a, a sort of fanaticism about the Blue Rider group, for example. He would talk endlessly about German art. I don't particularly want to tell you, but... Uh, you know when you're in the pub with people and uh, at that age, everybody's intense about everything, but he was particularly intense uh, about politics, of course. It's probably not the story you think it is. And he was wearing a blue shirt. It looked a bit odd, like a scout shirt or something. And uh, it was only I, I, when I asked him, he explained that this is a thing called a young pioneer shirt. In, in East Germany at the time, young people who were aligned with the party would wear this special blue shirt. It was like being a political scout or something. But he would wear that in Edinburgh. It was quite bizarre in a way, you know, but that was a... It showed his loyalty to his left-wing causes, as it were. It's probably not the story you think it is. I think this is probably a characteristic of people like this, that, you know, they they had this determination, whatever their passions were, they did it and did it and did it. And that was his trap. He was spying right up to the night before the Berlin Wall fell in 1989. The last message from him came the night before the wall fell. He didn't give up. Because at that point, of course, the Stasi were being besieged in their headquarters. He didn't think it was going to fall, but neither did anyone else. It came as a complete surprise to all of us when the wall fell. Uh, but it must have been devastating for him. It's probably not the story you think it is. Overseas urgently by police stations all over the country. It is perhaps the most important announcement made in Central Europe since the end of World War II, certainly since the wall went up in 1961. Now, we have to remember what happened here. The wall came down in 1989. The files were there. We found the British files. The shredders hadn't really chewed them all up. And if you go back to Berlin, as I have, and following up on all this, if you walk through the doors of the Stasi Museum, there are some amazing things there because the Stasi became unbelievably good at spying on their own people. Right, now that we have the large hole, which will take the microphone capsule and the electronics, we need a tiny one millimetre hole through the plaster on the other side. It's hard to imagine how good they become. They were the first in the world to perfect microphones that you stick through the wall and it stops just before the wallpaper. And I gently work it until it goes through the plaster and all I want on the other side. Really incredibly difficult to detect, but amazingly powerful in terms of uh, understanding what's going on in that room. Is just 
a one millimeter hole and there it goes. Not only that, there were cameras, they had microphones behind ties, they had microphones in pens and watches and cuckoo clocks, in little wooden ornaments that sat on your living room shelf. The lens they went to spy on people with microphones and cameras was almost beyond belief. But it wasn't just the physical devices that they became very good at. They were also exceptionally good at, on the human side, in other words, a huge percentage of the population, remember, were spying on their friends, sometimes their own relatives. Now, to give you an idea of how extreme this got, if you go to the Stasi Museum, and sometimes in East Germany you see them in car boot sales, you will see thousands, they discovered thousands and thousands of empty jars. Those little jars with little rubber seals on the top with two clips on the side, they use it put big pots of jam or whatever. And when they saw these, they didn't really know what they were at first. Then they discovered that the Stasi were stealing the underwear of people, or in some cases interrogating them with a towel on the chair so that some sweat, they would really give you a hard time so you would literally sweat. They then store your underpants or this towel in a jar for some time, and that would be sealed up and stored as your smell. The, they were like the Nazis in, this, in that sense, you know, they were in meticulous in terms of what they did, in terms of spying and the recording of the spying, really right down to the level of recording the smell of the enemy. Why would they want to record your smell? Well, remember, the big problem was people trying to escape over the wall, and dogs were used to protect the wall, so if you were a suspect, they could chase you down using, do uh, using the smell and using dogs. It was quite an evil aspect to all this at the time. We had a friendship that was born of circumstance because we just ended up sharing this room because of the sort of vagaries of the student accommodation system. But as you do when you're at university, you know, sometimes the people you first meet by chance become really close friends. And that happened with us. You know, we, we shared the room. Then we started with the little group of uh, people who were in that student accommodation. It was a big house, really. We're drinking together. As I say, that developed into a friendship uh, such as we went on holiday together. You know, that was a... Uh, that was pretty intense, I think, and uh, uh, quite close. And then, as absolutely happens, people graduate, you disappear, you never see them again. Some you stay in touch with, Robin, I didn't. For the very good reason he had gone to Germany, he was busy spying. It's interesting that I did actually meet up uh, with this guy once, uh, and this was before 1989. Of course, this was me reflecting, oh, did I meet up with him at any point? And a very good friend of mine was working in the GLC and government in London. And he phoned me up one day and said, a strange thing happened today. This guy, I met this guy, Robin, right outside my workplace. He was walking past as I came out the door. I said, let's go for a drink. Went up to London, had a drink with Robin. It was great, you know, it's a, it's a guy I hadn't seen for maybe 15 years or whatever. And uh, we're sitting there having a drink. He wasn't that interested in me, interestingly, but of course he was interested in my other friend who was working in government. And of course, I never thought anything of it until that night in the Panorama programme when I phoned up my friend and went, remember that night in London? 
boy, that makes sense now. I don't know why he wasn't the slightest bit interested in me, but was interested in you. And of course, he hadn't bumped into him by accident. He had deliberately planned the walk past the door. He must have known when my mate was coming out uh, uh, of his offices. If we look at the, the numbers, I mean, East Germany was absolutely extraordinary. Even the Gestapo didn't have the sort of ratios that the Stasi had in terms of spying. Uh, Stalin, it was about one in 6,000 people were spies for the state. The Gestapo, about one in 2,000. If you look at the, uh, the Stasi, the stat was one in 63. One in 63 people. How many people do you have living in your street? One of them would have been a spy. Actually, that's just the people who were being paid and officially spying. There was countless part-time informers. Some people reckon that that ratio dips almost to one in six, one in seven. If you really look at the people who actually just informally gave little notes or who were asked a question and gave information back, one in seven, that's starting to look like one member of every large family. So the numbers were extraordinary. Now, if you go to Berlin, I highly recommend that you go to the Stasi Museum, which was the Stasi headquarters. But there's another place that's even worse in Berlin, which is the Stasi, uh, the Stasi prison in South Berlin called the Hohenschönhausen. If you do go to this prison, you will get somebody who was locked up in that prison who will take you around. This was not pretty. This was... This is the evil side of the regime. Spying is one thing, locking people up for their political views is another. And that set me on a journey, really. From that moment on, I said, well, yeah, I had some spare time, some spare money. I said, I think I'll go around Europe and find out more about this, and ended up in Budapest, in Hungary, in Lithuania, in Estonia, going around the various Stasi KGB headquarters just to see what was going on there. And it is absolutely astonishing what you do discover by going to those places. Let me start with Budapest. If you go to the famous Terror Museum in the, in the middle of Budapest, you will see one building, and this is often the case when you go and see the, the Stasi museums, the KGB stroke Stasi often took over the building that the Gestapo had. It was the same place, same cells, same techniques, not necessarily the same people, of course, but the similarity was uncanny. You can go in there and you see these cells, holding cells like coffins where you had to stand up, no window, literally the size of a coffin to put the fear of death into you, padded cells, straight-jacketed cells. Further north in Estonia, uh, in Vilnius, if you go down into the basement of Vilnius, uh, you will see an amazing sight, row after row of cells, but one in particular really, really strikes hard. It's a tiny brown cell. In the floor, it's like a little swimming pool with a little plate in the middle that's about a foot across. Imagine a little plate or tray standing off the floor. And in the back of the cell is a hatch. And they would open this hatch and flood the cell with ice cold water and make the prisoner stand naked on the little tray in the middle of the cell. And of course, fatigue would set up and you would slip into the water. They'd waken you up again, make you stand in the middle of the cell again. But I remember this is living memory, this stuff. This is uh, post uh, Second World War.
Now you may think, okay, that was the, you know, the Stasi phenomenon, as it were, the KGB phenomenon. Uh, but worse than this was the trip I took thereafter to Cambodia. Now remember, we're talking about 1975 here, and anyone who goes to Phnom Penh or Cambodia and witnesses what happened there without literally being crushed and flooding into tears isn't human because the year zero phenomenon was beyond belief. Beyond belief. The old dialectical materialism, which Marx and Engels gave us through Lenin, ended up with the end, for me certainly, of any ideas that Marxism was even remotely feasible. Beyond belief. The idea that you would slice and dice society initially in Marx in a class basis so that one class would eventually struggle against the other, that I get. But Paul Pot took this to such an extreme that he split people into those that live in cities and those that don't, and effectively murdered those people who lived in cities. Beyond belief. Beyond belief. Then he turned to the peasantry and started to slice and dice those. It left nothing more to slice, and most of the population then, of course, had been murdered, sometimes by their own relatives. in my tutu driver, you know, when I'm driving around, you could speak to any adult of my age and they will tell you tales of their mother, their father, their brothers, their sisters being brutally murdered. For the sake of what? Some sort of weird ideology around something that academics talk a lot about material. Di you know, dialectical materialism sounds great in the lecture hall. It's not so great if you grew up in Cambodia. It was the end of that stuff for me. Beyond Perhaps a more, <laughs> something a wee, bit, a wee bit lighter there as part of my journey in reading in this area was the trip I took to Jura. Uh, I went across to Jura. You might wonder why I went there in this trek. Uh, I walked the length of the island to the little cottage right in the north where George Orwell wrote 1984. It's an amazing little white cottage in the middle of nowhere. It doesn't even have electricity, but you can hire it and so on. Because he really did nail this. You know, 1984 or 48, when it was written, really was prescient. It did actually happen. This story about the Stasi, my personal close friend, became one of those people. He became one of those people who spied on people who did want a totalitarian regime to take over in Europe to crush people's spirit. It actually happened in East Germany, but he wanted that to happen here as well. What a strange thing. I suppose in those days, you know, in reflecting on it, I have one big reflection is why, why didn't he try and recruit me? If you, if you, anybody who grew up in that area in the 70s in the university system knew that everybody was left wing, you know, everybody was, you know, that, you know, you're, it was common to be in the pub with people of the Socialist Worker Party and so on. Why didn't he recruit me? I always thought, I always felt slighted by that in a sense. 
Long before uh, I knew that Robin was a spy, I had been to the Soviet Union several times. You know, I was quite a sort of left-wing guy when I was younger, and I lived in Scotland. There was an organisation called Sovscot that used to arrange these flights from Moscow to Glasgow. <laughs> rather unusually, and uh, I went on two serious trips using through the Sovscot organisation. The interesting thing about that was, although Robin never tried to recruit me when I was a student, but it did actually happen to me through this alternative means. When I was in Russia, in Kiev, uh, I enjoyed football and I asked the guy if I could go and see a Kiev match. I knew it was on. And so this guy turned up to the hotel and uh, we went in a taxi and we saw a Dynamo Kiev play. And I bought a little pendant, which I've still got, of Dynamo Kiev on it. And as we were standing watching this match, half time came and in Russian football matches were grim affairs. In this big hollow stadium, the police and army right round where the track is, and they stood up at halftime and they faced the crowd in quite a sort of threatening manner because they didn't want anything kicking off in terms of demonstrations. This, remember, this is totalitarian Soviet Union. And the guy who was with me took the opportunity then, I think, and I'm pretty sure, you know, you. You, you think, did this really happen or not? Because, you know, you, 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 it's easy for memory to exaggerate things. But he then started talking to me in an over-friendly manner about staying in touch when I got back to Scotland and how we should write to each other and so on. And I thought, this is pretty full-on, you know, it's like half-time chat in football in Scotland isn't normally this intense. And then it was only afterwards, really, when I went back to the hotel, I talked to whether my then girlfriend and my wife. I said, it was so pretty weird what happened after. I'm pretty sure I was being, you know, tapped up there in terms of in terms of working for them. And funnily enough, that thought stayed with me, and I still have the little pendant. It was like a cue for this memory. If the guy had asked me straight up, of course, that's what they never did. Uh, they were they were really professional at this. In my subsequent reading, you find out that they are, they were actually almost like grooming. It was the, you know it was the equivalent of grooming. They would take it very slowly because, uh, as a handler, you had to make this big written assessment of the people you were recruiting. So you could you weren't jumping in there and making snap promises or things. They looked very very carefully. It was almost like a recruitment and selection process. They were filtering large numbers of names down to the individuals that they wanted. Uh, the most successful recruiting strategy for the Stasi was in fact students who went for a year's exchange to Leipzig, so where they had a chance to look at them, assess them, and then towards the end, you know, they would uh, get themselves involved in their lives. Uh, it wasn't so much, you know, well, here's Donald, he's at a football match, let's try it, <laughs> you know. So uh, I, I, I think genuinely looking back, uh, it was a genuine attempt, but I think lots of people got approached in a light touch way then because they were always doing that light touch, <laughs> testing you out to see if you were, first of all, sympathetic to the politics and the regime. And then secondly, of course, a more important thing for spies, are you any good at it? And I suspect I, was, I wouldn't have been. Some of the follow-up is quite interesting because there have been questions asked in the House of Commons about him. And I have a friend who was an ex-Tory MP who was, again, like me, a little bit puzzled as why he never went to jail. But, of course, there are all sorts of hypotheses there. He could actually have been working for us. Who knows? That's a possibility. He could have been feeding information afterwards about things that had happened before. Deals could be struck and so on. But there have been a number of people who have been questioning this. Uh, but I suspect, given the the cloud of secrecy in this country that we'll never really know what's happened there.
it's probably not the story you, you think it is. I think there are other things that have come to bear now in terms of modern politics. You might call this the Stasi 2.0. And by that, I mean the WikiLeaks, I mean Edward Snowden, the whole notion that uh, actually the state has been spying on all of us, the NSA from the US, have my personal details, even although I'm not a US citizen. The Stasi phenomenon hasn't gone away, it's just morphed and transformed into something in many ways worse and more insidious. Almost everything anybody does online can be tracked by the NSA or any other agency who has the technical will to do so. So the modern heroes of the age, the people who fought against totalitarian regimes uh, in Eastern Germany, have a right, I think, to avoid Stasi 2.0 and to really make sure that people like Jim Clapper, the head of the NSA, who absolutely lied when he said that the NSA were not spying on foreign citizens or indeed their own citizens within the US. He was found out and things have moved on. So I think in many ways we may be in a predicament that is worse than the predicament of not those who were killed by Pol Pot, but certainly the predicament that people found themselves in the East and in East Germany, because this is happening as we speak. Uh, Julian Assange, just think what happened to this guy, still locked up in a small room in an embassy in London because he dared to expose the information gathering that was going on, uh, dared to expose the horrors of war, and what did we do? We've crushed his spirit, tried to crush his spirit. Everybody's been involved in this in terms of governments in the West. Uh, we have Edward Snowden, again, a, a guy who's actually on the right of the political spectrum, who is exiled in Russian, an American citizen who comes out, does a good thing, exposes wrong, and finds refuge in Russia. The people who originally were behind the KGB and the Stasi that I've been describing, <laughs> How weird is that? And perhaps the big danger in the future in terms of Stasi 2.0 isn't Russia. Perhaps it's actually the US, the country that claims the standard for freedom may be the biggest threat in terms of your personal freedoms, whether you're an American or not. And I suppose that was the end point of my journey here. You know, I had gone around Europe, I'd been in Russia a lot, my personal friend turned out to be a spy. So the lasting legacy for me personally is the idea that the Stasi 2.0 phenomenon will not be used on me, my family and my friends. It will not be something which I give in to and will fight all the way. I will not put up with the idea that I as a citizen will be subjected to the same sort of spying, even worse and more detailed than those people in East Germany were subjected to. There's another one